I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by Atkins Realis, a world-leading design, engineering, and project management organization. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today, with COP28 about to commence and run until the 12th of December in Dubai, we're going to be talking about climate diplomacy and whether or not it's working. To dig into this topic, I'm joined by Simon Sharp, who is a former UK diplomat and author of Five Times Faster, Rethinking the Science, Economics and Diplomacy of Climate Change. Last month, we asked Simon to write us a piece about what COP is and isn't good for and how we might achieve better progress towards our national and global emissions goals. So Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Imagine it's a busy time for you. Are you are you preparing for COP? Are you heading to COP yourself this time around? Hi, Ellen. Good to be with you. Yes, um, I think very many people in the climate change community are preparing for COP and heading out there and uh, yeah, I'll be, in, be there in a in a week or so myself. How many have you been to over the years? What's your history of your relationship with the COP? I think this is probably going to be number seven for me. And my first one was Doha in 2012. And one thing I remember about that was how many Ferraris there were outside all the hotels and also how we drove out across the desert uh, one night, the only night that everybody meets to have some drinks and socialise the Saturday in the middle and uh, the organisers put us as far away as possible from the centre of the city, so out in the desert, which involved driving past a, a large number of gas plants. And what are you going to be getting up to this time? In, in what kind of role are you there? Well, the important thing about COP is what happens around the outside of the formal negotiations. Um, it's almost inside out compared to how it's typically seen. The perception is that there are these incredibly important negotiations happening in the centre in this very restricted area that most people can't get into. And then around that, everything else is just side events and, and a circus. And it's often talked about in disparaging terms. I actually think it's, it's completely the opposite of that. The first COP I had, as I said, it was Doha. I spent two weeks inside the negotiating rooms and I decided never, ever to do that again. There were literally fights over punctuation about whether you should have square brackets or curved brackets. It was not people sitting down and talking about how to solve the problem of climate change and global emissions. And we can go into why that is, but around the outside, you actually have a whole load of really constructive discussions going on 
about each one of the emitting sectors, about all kinds of different problems to do with finance, technology, politics, and how we work with these realities of the global economy and how we can work together to change things more quickly. Uh, so that is where a great deal of useful stuff is happening. And that's where I always try and spend my time when I go to COP. But what I think needs to happen over the longer term is, is that we really do turn this inside out, that that practical cooperation becomes the center of attention, not something on the periphery that everybody talks about as literally side events. Some COPs are known for those kind of big achievements or, you know, strong areas of focus in the formal negotiations. So Paris, of course, is a big one. Glasgow, which you were also quite involved in, was a big one. Are there big goals in the formal negotiations for this COP? Yes, I, I think there are going to be um, political fights over a couple of things. One is a form of wording about phasing out fossil fuels. And we already know the European Union will push for that. So will many of the NGOs around the outside of the negotiations. And of course, everybody would like it if the world committed to phase out fossil fuels. That sounds really good. But to me, I, I have a couple of worries about that. Uh, to be honest, I, I think it risks wasting an awful lot of political capital because in effect, we all already agreed in 1992 that we would phase out fossil fuels, except with carbon capture and storage, because that's what's implied by the commitment to stabilize greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, you can't do that without phasing out unabated fossil fuels. So we've already got that commitment 30 years ago. Restating it in a slightly different form of words doesn't make it any easier to achieve. And the really critical thing is, how do we make it easier to move in the direction that we've all agreed to move in? So that's, that's one great big fight that will soak up a load of time and political capital and might not really help anybody very much. A second one that I think there will be a big battle about, a very justified battle, is to do with what people call loss and damage, which if you call a spade a spade, then it's really a conversation about compensation for the unavoidable damage that's already being done. As, as we've already seen, it's an incredibly difficult discussion about what money can be put on the table, by who, who can access it, and how. And then the third thing that should be very prominent is in what way should countries respond to the global stock take that the UN has done? So this is something that was agreed back in the Paris Agreement of 2015, that there would be these regular five-yearly stock takes uh, to look at how good are countries' emissions targets and how do they compare to the actual aim of avoiding dangerous climate change. And we've had the first one of those this year. And of course, it, it told us something we all know already, which is that countries' emissions targets are nowhere close to where they would need to be. For this decade up to 2030, countries' emissions targets are, are sort of flat. There's an uncertainty range. You can't really tell for sure whether they're going up or down. To be in line with the goals that everybody's agreed, those targets in aggregate would need to point down by something like 40 to 50% emissions cuts over the next seven years. So looking at it that way, we're way off track. Somehow the world has to respond to that. And what you get through the formal negotiations, a response is a form of words uh, that says something about countries' intentions. To me, there, there are really two directions that that can take. 
One is to double down on the existing form of diplomacy, which is actually quite unilateral. And we might, might see a form of words coming out that just agrees that countries should try harder, should resubmit new national targets as, as they're already committed to do, and should try harder, do better next time. An, an alternative outcome that we could see is something about countries actually agreeing to work together in a useful way. And it could emphasize the need for countries to work together in each of the emitting sectors so that they can change the global economy uh, more effectively than if they're each acting separately on their own. That would be something I, I think would set a very helpful direction of travel for the negotiations over the coming years. So, I mean, kind of underlying your analysis of the situation is that the will is there, but you're saying we need to make it easier for countries to set those targets. Is that right? So there is undoubtedly a significant amount of political will. There's will among governments, investors, businesses, civil society to make progress on climate change. Um, of course, there is also political will and other interests against the transition. Um, and not just oil and gas companies, but in every sector, there are incumbents who face risks in the transition and frequently lobby against it. So there's this battle of interest playing out across the world in all different countries. The question for diplomacy is, how does it help people who are fighting for a low carbon transition win the many, many battles they face against people fighting against it? And that's really a question of structure. How do you set up, how do you structure climate diplomacy so that it helps win those battles? My take on it is that at the moment it's really not structured in a way that helps win. What we have as a structure is a multilateral process, all countries in the world involved, mostly trying to agree consensus on, on some process-based texts, like how often countries should submit national targets. The actual substance is left to those countries individually to figure out, but of course they, they all lobby each other over these long-term targets. None of that really helps. If you're in the UK and you're struggling over how to decarbonize heat um, or how to reform the power sector, none of that actually makes your job any easier. What could make it easier is if you have cooperation that is focused within each of the emitting sectors instead of talking about economy-wide targets, because each one of them is completely different from the others. You know, the power sector is not the same as shipping or agriculture. Second thing is you need smaller participation. You don't need the whole world around the table every time because then you, you really can't agree anything very substantial. You need just enough a critical mass of countries in each sector to shift that part of the global economy. And the third thing is you need to focus less on these long-term targets where everybody's quite uncertain of what they can achieve and focus more on actions. What can we do now? that moves things on the next step. If we uh -huh. shift things structurally in those ways, then actually diplomacy stands a much higher chance of being useful. It will still be difficult, no mistake about it, it's still gonna be really hard, but at least the battles, the difficulty, the political energy that's invested in diplomacy will be focused on trying to solve the right kind of problems instead of wasted on arguing over the shape of some brackets or whether or not to have a hyphen. In the piece that you wrote on this theme for our magazine, you you make a comparison between ambitions for world peace and the kind of ambitions that you hear talked about 
on the kind of you know global stage of COP by the world leaders. Can you tell us a bit more about what what you what you meant by making that comparison? Yeah, I was talking about the scope of diplomacy and at what scope it's useful. And if you think about, uh, I, I you know I really think climate change diplomacy needs to learn from diplomacy in other fields. Um, and maybe it, it helps me think this way because I had had a career in diplomacy before I came to climate change. And so if, if you look at war and peace, when diplomacy tried to agree a, a treaty for world peace, uh, you know, most of the large powers in the world at that time signed up. This was in 1928. Uh, but of course, we all know what happened not long after that. It wasn't effective. It bit off more than it could chew. But you can see many examples of smaller peace treaties that have been effective. They were focused on particular places and particular problems. I think the same thing is true if you look at poverty alleviation, for example. You can, if you want, you can agree a, a global agreement to end poverty, but that agreement probably won't achieve anything. It's far too large. Um, whereas specific interventions on particular problems have more chance of success. Again, it's very similar in, in trade. So I think that's very important for climate change too. When you set the scope at the level of economy-wide emissions and you ask a country, please set a target that your emissions will go down instead of up, what you're asking it to do is make enormous structural reforms across power generation, buildings, road, sea and air, transport, industry of all different kinds, agriculture, all of those things are difficult and complicated. They have great political interests at stake, not to mention the money, um, social interests. All of that is difficult and there are many uncertainties along the way. So that is just too broad a scope to agree on all at once. Whereas if you go into any one of those sectors, you have much more chance of, of having a useful discussion. For example, if you're talking about the power sector, then it's not just climate change that's at play, the interest of energy security, the cost of electricity, the jobs in that sector. So when you focus on it, you have more chance of finding the places where those interests can be served and, and harnessed in a useful way. After the break, we'll talk more about how climate diplomacy needs to change. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new offer, if you take out an annual digital subscription to Prospect, you'll enjoy one month's free digital access to all of the magazine's best long reads, commentary, and cultural criticism. Sign up now at prospectmagazine.co.uk slash one month free. This is Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber, and this week on Media Confidential, we're talking to the legendary photographer and photojournalist Sir Don McCullen. Alan Sedan is one of the greats, and his images from wars and famines and areas of social unrest and poverty are hugely memorable and often devastating. I feel like he really opened up to us. I agree. Don, now 88, said some remarkable things about his career, about war, and about the toll that has taken on him. Here's a taster. I operate purely as a human man with a pair of good eyes that were bequeathed to me by my maker. So um, I relied very heavily upon the opportunity. It's always the opportunity. If it's there, I'm going to eat it all up and swallow it and get every ounce of juice from that moment. 
But you know, there is a danger that you know one becomes greedy and selfish, and you think these images belong to you. They do not. You are stealing these images from people suffering in front of you. So you know, I feel as if I'm walking on burning coals that are burning my feet and telling me that what I'm doing isn't always right. I have a conscience, and I know what I did in the wars are not always right. Media Confidential featuring Sir Don McCullen is available on Thursday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's maybe dig into some of those examples, you know, that potentially have uh, great opportunities for, for progress. Again, in the piece that you wrote for our our magazine that we'll make sure to include a link to, um, you sort of set the scene in in Teesside where there's this net zero industrial cluster that's being developed. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and why it, for you, symbolizes a different way of making progress? Industry, broadly defined, is about 20% of global emissions. And it's hard. Most of those emissions, the, the biggest parts come from things like steel and cement and chemicals and then a, a whole load of smaller components. Most countries have done hardly anything so far to actually decarbonize those industries. The most common thing has been uh, approaches to try to make those industries more energy efficient because that cuts some emissions over the short term. But actually, if you think about it, that's not really what we need. In the power sector, if we just concentrated on making coal and gas plants more efficient, we'd still have a load of coal and gas plants now. Luckily, governments have invested in solar and wind, the zero emission technologies, and those are growing very fast and displacing the fossil fuels. And we can see the way forward towards a zero emission power sector. So in industry, that's the same kind of process that we have to start. You have to start deploying the zero emission technologies. And then after a while, eventually they can move up the S-curve. Now, there, there are different kinds of technologies in play. 
different options. Um, um, many people would say carbon capture and storage is probably not one of the technologies that is very likely to scale up or to really come down in cost. But it may be one of the necessary things or it, or it may be useful to have as an option. What I found impressive about Teesside was there's a genuine effort going on there to create a, a net zero industrial cluster, as they call it, which means taking a load of emissions from the chemical plant that is there and other industries and shoving them underground somewhere 100 kilometers out under the North Sea. Um, and at the same time, creating a whole load of new industries there that, that help construct zero emission technologies like building wind turbines and, and so on. Um, how does that relate to diplomacy? Well, the crucial point is that in those hard to decarbonize sectors like chemicals, for the foreseeable future, the zero emission production process is likely to be more expensive than the fossil fuel process. And these are highly exposed sectors. They compete internationally, they sell to global markets. And if there's no international coordination on that, then there's a huge penalty for being a first mover. You can produce your, your chemicals in a zero emission process in Teesside, but they're higher cost and you find you can't sell them anywhere in the world because somebody else out in China or India or America is, is selling without having to decarbonize them and they outcompete you. Now, it's not just the UK that faces that challenge. Any country that is serious about industrial decarbonization faces that challenge. So to enable a transition in any of those sectors, you really need a certain amount of coordination between the countries that are the critical players in that sector. Um, steel is a very good example of this where, you know, it's a global market. You have China producing about half the world's total. You have the European Union worried about how its producers will be undercut when it decarbonizes. To me, it seems absolutely essential that you have the EU, China, America, India, one or two of the other big players. They need to be sitting down together in a room and saying, how do we work together to decarbonize the global steel sector? And the absolutely crazy thing is that after 30 years of climate change diplomacy, those discussions haven't even started yet. So how does that connect to COP? Are these the kind of discussions that go on in that, you know, outer outer sphere at COP? Is that the kind of conversation that, you know, you would expect to be happening in Dubai? Yes, these, these things do. And they... they they are progressing, um, but slowly. And so, for example, um, in the heavy industry sector, the, one of the initiatives that I, I think is most hopeful is called the Industrial Deep Decarbonization Initiative. It involves countries including India, America, Germany, the UK, Brazil, several others. And those countries are trying to work together to kick off the transitions in steel and cement. And to begin with, they're trying to do two things. One is to agree standards, how you measure emissions in those sectors and what you define as low emission or near zero emission. And the other thing they're working together on is the use of public procurement to create the first markets for near zero emission steel or cement. If, if you don't create a market somehow, there's absolutely no incentive for industry to invest. And if a group of countries creates that market together, saying they'll use public procurement, the enormous buying power of that to 
buy some of this zero emission steel or cement, then together they can create a stronger signal for industry to invest. So those kind of discussions will be happening when I'm, I'm part of this process where we are involving the International Energy Agency, International Renewable Energy Agency, and the Climate Champions team, where each year we write an independent report that takes stock of cooperation in each of the emitting sectors. It's called the Breakthrough Agenda Report. And what we find is across each of the sectors, there is a lot of this kind of cooperation taking place, but it's still, it's far below the level where we would need it to be. It's lacking in participation in many sectors, it's lacking in seriousness, it's often not intensive and sustained over time. And most of all, I would say, it's lacking the investment of political capital that diplomacy needs to succeed. And that, that is a, that's what you have when these things are still seen as peripheral instead of being the centre of attention. So how do you drive that forward? Do you need the political leaders who focused on, you know, the high level um, global promises to, to think more about these sectors specific initiatives? Absolutely. And I think it's really important for some heads of government themselves to show leadership by convening the right kind of discussions on sector specific topics. Um, actually, you know, one good example we've seen over the past year, uh, not on one of the emitting sectors, but on the question of finance, seeing Barbados, supported by France, convene governments at, at heads of government level and put some quite specific proposals on the table about how you would restructure the global financial architecture to better enable low carbon transitions. That's a good example of a country convening that, that kind of practical discussion that needs to happen. Another one is Germany, where they used their G7 presidency to convene those countries to talk seriously about industrial decarbonization. But again, unless the G7 is working with China and India, then we won't get very far. So that, that kind of leadership is, is absolutely crucial to shift the debate. I think almost nobody likes climate change diplomacy how it is now. There's not a single country that enjoys the experience of being lobbied about their emissions target or lobbying other countries. And nobody comes out of those discussions feeling like that was really productive, we made some progress today. Whereas if you sit them down in a room and you talk about power sector reform or electric vehicle charging infrastructure or steel procurement, you actually have a really positive discussion. And you don't always agree on anything, but, but sometimes you do feel like you've made progress. So I, I think there's an appetite for more of that. And there's a good chance of shifting diplomacy more in that direction. As we head into into another COP then, the story that you tell about the value of those outside circles at COP and the hard work that goes on outside formal nego negotiations being so important, do you feel that the institution, the event of COP still serves a good purpose or... Is it as key as many people in the public might think it is to progress? In the broad sense, I think, yes, COP serves a purpose because if, if you just imagine that on the big problem of climate change, if you didn't have an, at least one thing once a year where many people across the world get together and, and socialise with each other and share their ideas and launch new product, projects and, and all that stuff, it would be crazy not to have that. 
it's very valuable, just like in, in so many fields of business or academic life or anything else, you have conferences where people come together and share ideas. Of course, it's useful to have that on climate change as well. And COP is not the only one, but it's the biggest one. So it is useful in that sense. But more narrowly, looking at the actual United Nations climate change negotiations, are they still serving a purpose? I think that's a more difficult question. I think they have achieved something over the last 30 years, which is some level of consensus. They've established some shared global goals, temperature goals, global net zero, all that kind of thing. And they've provided some mutual encouragement between countries to set national targets and to come up with some actions to follow through. So we should give that credit where it's due. But we also have to recognize we're at a moment in time where far more than that is needed. We have to have structural change in the global economy five times faster this decade than we had on average over the last two decades. Let's not fool ourselves that we can achieve that by each country just acting on its own and the diplomacy acting as a sort of generic background piece of encouragement. We actually need real diplomacy. We need a structural shift to make that happen. So I think it's quite legitimate to challenge how much that can be achieved by the diplomacy in its current form. The UK has historically been very influential diplomatically in many different spheres, including in the environment. We've now got a government whose environment policies have been criticised recently by campaigners, scientists as well, um, and we've had multiple changes of environment minister. What does all of that mean for Britain's influence in climate diplomacy worldwide? What's our position as we head into forums like COP? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's no doubt that the recent political positioning of the government on climate change domestically will have been noticed internationally. And policy changes domestically matter. They are noticed internationally as well. And so when we're seen to be taking some steps backwards here in the UK, uh, then, of course, that doesn't help our diplomacy. Having said that, I think everybody recognises in, in all countries the transition is difficult and it's never a smooth and uninterrupted pathway forwards. Even the, the countries that are most forward-leaning on climate change have their difficult areas and they have their times when they take a step back before, again, they take a step forward. So I, I think that is recognised and despite everything recently, I think the UK is still seen as a country that is quite committed to the transition. And internationally, the UK is, is heavily involved, extremely active in many, many of, of the practical cooperation initiatives. So I, I think and I hope that countries take the long view and they still regard the UK as, as quite a trusted and important partner. Well, Simon, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your expertise on climate diplomacy built over so many years. We hope you have a great time in Dubai, that it's a productive experience and hopefully we can catch up about it when you're back. If you want to check out the piece that he wrote for our magazine, then do visit prospectmagazine.co.uk to read it in full. While you're there, you'll also find the latest long reads, columns and criticism from our December issue, including perspectives from Khaled Mansour and former Knesset leader Avraham Berg on the war in Gaza, and our new philosophy columnist, Sasha Mudd. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to hit follow or subscribe to catch an in-depth conversation on the stories behind the news each and every week. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.